You want more control over your rooftop solar, right? But you don't necessarily want to invest in a battery. Well, Fronius has the inverter for you. The interchange is brought to you by Fronius, and Fronius is giving you more control over your solar than ever before with the versatile hybrid inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus. Whether you're storing solar, integrating storage, or looking for backup power without batteries, you can ensure the important loads in your house can continue to operate if the grid fails. Want the latest in tech plus peace of mind? Turn to Fronius. Learn more at fronius.us slash pv. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM in Boston. Welcome. In Berkeley, California is Shale Khan. He's my co-host and a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Climate tech is suddenly the hot new thing in venture capital. For years now, venture investors have stayed away from the clean tech category, a hangover from the Solyndra days that we have thoroughly documented on the interchange. But we appear to be in a new phase of interest. Prominent investors are publicly declaring their push into the space. Influential voices in tech are calling on more investors to do the same, including Kara Swisher, who wrote a persuasive piece in the New York Times last week. And now all kinds of startups are getting a second look. So what is going on? Well, here with us to talk about it is, of course, Shale Khan, but also a returning guest, Abe Yakel. Abe is a managing partner at Congruent Ventures. He is steeped in this topic, and he's with us from San Francisco. Abe, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You started our last show by calling Shale the Yeti because he's very hard to pin down. He's rarely cited in the office. You two share an office. Now, Shale is very difficult to pin down to schedule for this show, too. So um, I'm wondering, has have things gotten any better over there? You know, I thought I was going to see Shale walk in the doors this morning because I'm sitting here in our <laughs> shared office and he's nowhere to be seen. So yet again, the Yeti strikes. That's right. <laughs> the trick is just to be no, nothing to no one. And so everybody thinks that you're busy all the time. But in reality, you just don't do anything. So Shale, what's the case to be made that we're in a different and perhaps more hopeful phase of venture capital for clean tech or climate tech or whatever you venture capitalists are calling it these days? <laughs> well, I think it's early days still like i don't think that if you if you look at um trends in vc investment and the macro data i don't think this shows up quite yet so it's more anecdotal than it is anything else at this point but i will say it feels to me just from you know taking the temperature of the space both the venture capital community and the like startup entrepreneur community that there is something very real happening like a new upwelling of interest and support around what is I think mostly being termed climate tech now, which is a sort of new term for it. Like clean tech is out, sustainability, resource efficiency, all these other terms that um, were in vogue at various points, I think are out and climate tech is in. But what's happening within climate tech is you're seeing folks like Union Square Ventures, venerated firm invest, making their first investments in the space and publishing a, a blog post sort of defining their thesis around it. I should note that one of their two initial investments in the space was a congruent ventures company. So congratulations, Abe. Um, but so they did it. Then Kara Swisher wrote that article that you mentioned. Then Sequoia, a partner from Sequoia, jumped on and said, we're very interested. Send us an email at this particular email address around climate tech. And so that, that stuff's all happening in the public sphere. And then I think privately as well, I've just noticed there's this like enormous amount of interest in mitigating climate change amongst folks who are of the type to start 
companies or join really early stage startups. And so it just feels to me like um, this is going to show up in the data in six months and that we're in a new wave, which maybe finally we're coming out the other side of the, the cycle that ended a decade ago. Abe, do you agree with that? Is Shale putting together the pieces in the right way? I think, as always, he's thoughtful about it. And yes, he is. I think there's a, a lot that is behind the interest here. Some of it's emotional and some of it's factual. I think some of the emotional underpinnings of this, if you look back 10 years ago, the climate science was clear. The last three years have been filled with climate reality, and that has affected everybody. In California, you know, our state is on fire. Everybody's seen the Australian fires. We've got the tundra burning. We've got the Arctic Sea melting. We have Texas being underwater. Puerto Rico and the Bahamas will never be the same. And everybody who's thinking about this, you know, can't ignore the reality of what we're going through right now. That's on one hand. On the other hand, you have a tremendous amount of tech talent that, you know, the kind of greater calling in the tech community historically has been trying to make the world a better place. And I think over the last, particularly three to four years, there has been some amount of disillusionment within, you know, the tech worker community and trying to actually refine that purpose. Uh, and, and everybody is now trying to take, you know, whatever they can to address some of the critical issues in front of the world and society. So that's kind of the emotional underpinnings of this. And then you have a whole separate story on what is actually venturable and what is not as we look forward and look at some of the companies walking in through our doors and through EIP's doors, for example. I would I would just add two more things to that um, in total agreement, but also would say, you know, I think there's a generational element here, which uh, there's lots and lots of research that suggests that millennials and Gen Z or whatever comes behind millennials, you know, as a population extraordinarily concerned about climate change. Um, It's a, it's a really high level issue for them in a way that it hasn't been for folks who are a bit older. And that age of person is exactly the age that's sort of getting, growing up into um, the tech community now. And so I think there's particular interest amongst say folks 36 and younger um, around climate change. And then the other thing, Dave's point, I mean, the, the slightly more cynical version of why is this all happening right now is, um, you know, in this past fall, in the proactive power shutoffs that PG&E had to undertake, um, a good chunk of Silicon Valley lost power. And so it became very immediate to a lot of people that perhaps it wasn't before uh, that this is sort of here today. And I think that I'm sure that had some impact on everybody's interest in the space. So one of the things that we're going to try to do here is think through how this is playing out in terms of types and quantity of investments. But we're going to think through that, taking the lessons of you know cleantech VC 1.0, whatever you want to call it, the um, you know the first wave of investment that resulted in a lot of people losing their shirts and questioning the cleantech investment strategy. One of the reasons why a lot of companies have gotten passed over in recent years. Um, I guess what I'm trying to think through is if this is a real shift, are companies that may not have gotten attention from VCs getting more attention? Or is this just a bunch of firms stating their purpose and we've yet to see the impact? What do you guys think? I think that there are companies who will get a deeper look than they otherwise would have because they're 
is a whole group of investors who are interested in climate change mitigation. I and and that's good. I think, you know, the top of the funnel for venture is very big and then it's just really really hard to get down that funnel. Um what I don't think and this is probably a good thing. What I don't think is that it means that companies uh that, you know, aren't ventureable companies, like Abe said, will suddenly get funding from those same investors. Like I I think that the notion is that um a lot of investors believe that this is uh, not just a you know global calamity, but also an enormous value creation opportunity, and so they will be looking for companies that they that fit all of their other criteria, and they're not relaxing those criteria for these climate tech companies. But I do think it'll mean if you have a dedicated interest in the space, then you're going to spend more time scanning it and talk to more companies and try to understand it better. So your top of the funnel gets a little bigger, perhaps. Abe, what do you think? I think the answer to your question is nuanced as it always is and is a little bit long term. So one of the things that's important to digest in the venture community is the stages of capital and what we call the capital stack. We're at the earliest stages of capital formation at congruent. So pre-seed through seed to early series A. Without the companies that we tend to help along their journey, there aren't a lot of series A, series B, series C companies for the traditional and larger funds to go out and invest in. Uh, and there, there is an ecosystem today that is supported by a couple really you know, well-run later stage firms, uh, EIP being one of them. Uh, the question I think that will become more and more obvious over time and the answer that will become more obvious is at what point will the traditional venture funds really start investing in this? Are they going to come in at the seed level or are they going to wait until some of these companies mature to the kind of series A and series B level? And the, the answer to that is going to take, I think, a couple years to play out. We're seeing a tremendous amount of deal flow uh, at the seed stage, and we're very optimistic that it's going to play out well. To Shale's point, I don't think a lot of these mainstream firms are going to be making $50 million bets in a seed stage company. Uh, to, to support things in the climate. One other note on that broad question set, I've been investing in the space since 2004. In the 2004 through 2008 time period, what we saw is traditional venture firms doing anything to get into what was then a clean tech deal. And you would find partners kind of fighting their way into competitive deals to basically have something to say that they were doing more what we're now calling climate tech deals. There was a period for a long time where nobody would touch a clean tech deal. And now I think we're in kind of a nice steady ground where at least if you're an energy deal that makes sense from a venture perspective, you will now find capital. It doesn't mean everybody is going to go out of their way to have a climate tech deal in their portfolio. Do you like the term climate tech, Abe? I do like it, although I do think it's somewhat limited. Uh, we we call it sustainability because everything we do touches the energy and resource envelope broadly defined. So everything we have to, we do has to have a positive impact. But that isn't just uh, greenhouse gas mitigation. There are other environmental challenges that we tend to think about. What about you, Shale? I kind of agree. I mean, I think you know it's interesting. There's this whole other world going on in the public markets for which I think the term of art has become ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, um, all of which can uh, apply to companies. And, you know, that's a that's a, a broader umbrella under which, you know, climate tech could sit. 
Um, what I do like about climate tech is that it is pretty focused. Like, you know, you know what you're going after. Does this solution, does this technology do something to mitigate climate change? And if you believe that climate change is, you know, first and foremost amongst our global challenges, be they environmental otherwise, then at least it's, uh, it's clear on what it's going after. So look, I mean, I think the terminology is, is always going to be in flux, but, um, I'm happy to use the term climate tech for the next five years while it's hot. Well, coming up, in order to think through how this space is going to play out, we have to learn from the past. So we're going to hear your lessons and our lessons about what was learned from Cleantech 1.0. First, though, the interchange is brought to you by Fronius. Its newest inverter, the Primo Gen 24 Plus, can help you transform your home's energy security. It's a versatile hybrid inverter that delivers long-lasting backup power during outages. Thanks to multi-flow technology and integrated backup power, the Primo Gen 24 Plus can keep supplying energy loads and charge a battery at the same time. It's also extremely simple to install in your home, and you can commission it right on your smartphone and connect it to your smart home. With a variety of integrated features like energy management, data communication, and basic grid backup, the Primo Gen 24 Plus offers uniquely flexible solutions for your home's solar energy supply. Find out more at fronius.us PV or follow the link there in the show notes. All right, gentlemen, we have spent uh, countless minutes on this show recounting what happened in the first wave of cleantech investment. But I think it's helpful to remind our listeners what happened. So I'm going to try something. Rather than spend a whole section on it, I'm going to time each of you. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, and I want to see who can come up with the best description of what happened during that first wave. Abe, you're our guest, so you go first. Be delighted to. Okay, so you've had no time to prepare, and we're just going to get started here. So 30 seconds to you. Three, two, one, go. 2004 through 2008, the traditional venture community piles into climate tech and clean tech. 2008, financial crisis occurs. Everybody runs away 2008 through 2016. Early 2017 or so, the capital stack and the entrepreneurial talent come back in. And here we are today in 2020 with lots of people looking at the space. 22 seconds. That was great. Very, very concise. You're up, Okay, Shale, I'm, hmm. <laughs> I'm resetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go. Three, two, one. John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins gives a TED Talk talking about how climate change is both the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity in a century. All major Silicon Valley venture capital funds dedicate lots of money to the space. Unfortunately, um, in large part, they make two big bad bets, one on thin film solar, one on biofuels. Those bets alone cause the erosion of a fair amount of capital in the space, despite there being some actual winners that emerge, like Tesla and many others. Um, Time. Oh, no. Shale, that is just way too much content. <laughs> uh, it's not like your listeners want to hear content. That's my... <laughs> yeah, overloaded our this listeners. Is, now they know. See, we, we edit ourselves on this show normally, so they don't know that I'm ridiculously verbose and have no ability to edit myself. <laughs> <laughs> so Damn. so So let's, let's talk through... I thought I was at... To be honest with you, I thought I was at like 12 seconds. <laughs> this is really making me question myself. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so you have been thinking about this period, Shale. You recently sent out word on Twitter asking for people for their lessons from this period that you both so deftly uh, described for us. What are the lessons that you were trying to glean 
What were you thinking about when you wanted people to comment? And what were the broad categories of commentary you got? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a a lot lately because I'm just really excited to see this new wave of interest in the space. Um, And it occurred to me that one thing we should probably do if we're all going to go on this ride again together is take the time to step back and say, okay, well, we did go through a cycle once before of a boom and bust in investment in what was called cleantech at the time. Um, let's be clear on what lessons we should, and just as importantly, what lessons we should not take from that first wave so that this time we learn from our mistakes and, and don't avoid things that we should be doing. So, yeah, so I put out a tweet just basically asking the world for, you know, what lesson you would impart to this new wave of investors if you could, having been through the first cycle and, um, struck some kind of a nerve because it got a ton of responses and they were really interesting. All right, so you went through all the responses, really fantastic responses, by the way, um, and categorized them. Let's walk through each category and dissect them. All right, so the first one um, is, which we've talked about before, I think, is about timeline, which is we got a bunch of folks suggesting that basically you need to recognize that this sector, and I think particularly they mean energy, just takes longer for things to come to fruition and scale than other sectors, particularly software. And so you need to have a longer time horizon on your investment thesis. So obviously this one has borne out in the market in you know some longer time horizon funds. But Abe, I wonder whether you think this is actually a lesson that should be gleaned generally or whether it's specific to certain technologies in certain markets. If you're using the venture model to attack this market, then I think shifting the timelines and the expectations as a gross rule is not only not fair, but not always accurate. It is certainly true that it takes longer to go out and build projects and develop projects, be they solar, battery, or wind. But there is a subset of companies that I think will, in fact, meet the venture model and can scale quite quickly. So it's a broad statement. Everything is in the details, but I just don't really believe that this is a truism across the board for all companies that are addressing sustainability and climate tech. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that there are parts of the climate tech universe that look closer to, I don't know, healthcare or pharma or something like that, where there are long time horizons. They're highly regulated industries. And if you're in a part of that industry that requires regulatory approval or UL certification or whatever, then maybe there will be a longer time horizon. Or you're doing really, really deep tech stuff, right? Like all these space tech companies is another good example. Long time horizons. Um, however, there are other equally large, if not larger portions of this market that I think can and should be able to scale at the same pace as any other venture type company. I mean, Nest would be a good example of that, right? Like if you're business to consumer and you're selling a consumer product, then you should be able to scale at uh, the same pace as any other consumer product and Nest and Ecobee and a lot of these other companies have. Um, so I think it's more nuanced than that. I don't think that's a fair... I don't think that's a fair bet. On the other hand, I do think it is good that we do have investors with longer time horizons now, folks like Breakthrough Energy Ventures, who are basically there to particularly to invest in the technologies um, and companies that probably will take longer to gestate. And I would agree. I don't see a problem with a longer duration fund, but if we're trying to use a financial tool set to address our challenges, then it needs to look like a financial tool set. And 
this may not make me many friends in our collective universe, but I do sometimes feel like pushing this discussion on the timeline timelines of development for companies and therefore the fund structures that go around that at times can just be an excuse uh, for the lack of near-term returns that show up in the funds. As a quick example there, there are many 2000 to 2002 vintage generalist venture funds that are actually still alive legally. They are 10 plus two. That means they're 12-year funds, but they're still in operation. The reason the LPs are okay with them being in operation is because the LPs made a lot of money. They made a lot of money early on in the cycle. And so it's very easy for them to just extend the life for a company that is taking longer to mature. So if you have good relative returns, limited partners are quite forgiving. If you do not have good relative returns, then you better stick to your fund life. So the next category is all about business models. Build a company or fund a company that enables some kind of technology rather than building something that's going to compete in commodity markets. All right. Is that how you read it, Shale? Yeah, more or less. I mean, I think that one is largely a reaction to what I was trying to say in my 30 seconds, which is that a lot of the money in the first cycle flowed into one, thin film solar companies, which turned out to be competing against the commodity of largely commoditized crystal and silicon manufactured at scale out of China um, and biofuels, which is a, a different version of a similar story. And so I think the lesson that that some folks are trying to take from that is don't in, don't invest in or build something um, that ultimately is just going to be in a commoditized market. If you want to play around that market, then invest in the so-called picks and shovels um, that enable the commodity to get to market. So Abe, um, imagine you have strong opinions about this one. What, uh, what do you think on the sort of like avoid commodities question? So I generally agree, but I think for reasons that may not be subject to traditional venture thinking, almost all commodity businesses are subject to heavy capital investment at the front end with usually long build times and are priced on the margin, meaning that if you can produce something at the variable price that makes sense for the market, you will continue to produce it. It's true for oil and gas. It turned out to be true in solar panels. It's certainly true for what the biofuels uh, world was trying to compete with. It's true in some of the commodity chemical markets. And the challenge with using the venture model and backing venture companies in a commodity market is that by definition, almost those price fluctuations of the commodity swing wildly, not based on rational economics, but based on the historical amount of capital invested and the current supply and, and demand dynamics. And so if you invest in the commodity, what you end up with is at some point getting out over your skis from an economic standpoint. And unless you have a huge balance sheet to weather the storm and come out of that capital cycle, you lose your shorts and no venture backed company has a deep enough balance sheet to weather that storm. So I agree with this. That doesn't necessarily mean you can only invest in enabling tech and business models, which is a separate discussion in my mind. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's also important just sticking to electricity for a second to be clear on what is and is not a 
commodity um, to be sure on what you should avoid. So solar panels, you know, let's set aside that there are some other technologies, but like solar panels largely did end up being a commodity. And, and most importantly to me, a- any given panel is basically doing the same thing. You can't um, create a different kind of solar panel that all of a sudden has a different resource profile unless you're, you know, broadly speaking, all solar panels are going to do the same thing. I, I, I do want to be careful not to then extend that to electricity writ large, right? Electrons are a commodity, but as we've talked about a zillion times on the show before, um, they're going to have different value depending on when they're produced and where they're produced as time goes on. And I think that that variability in that value is just going to increase over time, which means to me that if you have a uh, defensible technology that has a technology advantage that can produce either in a location that otherwise is impossible or at times that are otherwise impossible or challenging or just do so um, at a lower marginal cost, then you may have some sustaining advantage that will benefit you despite the swings in the overall commodity cost. So actually, as an example, right, like you you guys at Congruent, you invested in Fervo Energy, which is pursuing sort of a novel geothermal technology, right? So you, the bet there must be that despite the fact that electricity is a commodity, if you can produce geothermal at scale um, cheaper and it's sort of baseload clean energy, then that will have long-term value. Correct. We fundamentally, the bet is number one, that the team can do what they say they're going to do. And number two, that the value of the electrons they're producing, given the variability of the grid are going to have perhaps more value than just a priced electron coming out of your utility scale solar plant. Okay, so going to the next one, I'm just working my way through your list here, Shale. Avoid gatekeepers. What do you mean by that? Um, Well, I think this one is probably best exemplified by a specific response, which was from somebody in the trenches. So Ryan Popple, the CEO of Proterra, the large electric bus supplier, um, said, I'm quoting here, don't try to distribute a clean energy product via a fossil fuel controlled distribution network, sell direct to the beneficiary. So that's what he means by avoiding gatekeepers. What does that mean? Give me an example. I mean, I understand what that means, but like, what do you think Ryan's trying to say specifically? And I don't know what Ryan's saying, but uh, I I do. This is one of my general lessons learned. If I if I put it in my own words, which is be in a position to control the sale of your product or service, and generally speaking, avoid channel businesses early on in a company's life cycle. And this goes to the gatekeeper. If you're in a channel business, you're relying on somebody else to sell your product. Your product needs to be so much better than the incumbent to sell through a channel that it almost never happens. And I think most of the successes in the last go around were, in fact, examples of this. So, you know, Tesla famously avoided dealerships because, well, for I can't put words into Elon's (laughs) mouth, but uh, they're still fighting some of those franchise laws. They want to be able to sell and service their own cars. Um, the same thing has happened with solar over time, which is the entire solar channel, which again, to the point earlier, is effectively selling electrons to the home, was built not on the back of an electrical distribution channel. It was built on a local contractor channel at the beginning that was selling to homeowners. And then there were dedicated uh, financers and installers that were stood up to directly address this. And that's what scaled. So if you rely on the gatekeepers of the world, they have no economic incentive or interest in selling a new product or service that is by definition going to be more risky than whatever else they have historically been selling. How do you think about that in the context of the the fake meat 
companies, Beyond Meat and Impossible, stuff like that, where it's almost inherently a channel business. You can't sell fake meat direct, right? And so they're selling both through, say, grocery stores where I can buy it and cook myself and through Burger King where I can get the Impossible Whopper. Is there something different about a market like that? Actually, I think the same lesson applies. And we have a company in the portfolio called Emergy that is doing whole muscle alternatives in in this same world uh, instead of the ground meat alternative. And there has always been a discussion about branding versus non-branding. And in in, in the food world, in my mind, this is kind of a branded discussion versus an ingredients business discussion. If you are, in fact, producing a branded product of some kind, that is you're talking to your customer. You're getting feedback from your customer. Sure, you're fulfilling that demand through restaurants, through retail, but you're still controlling the conversation. I think Impossible in particular did this brilliantly up front by limited release, relatively high-end curated restaurants early on in their life. And I think generally speaking, while maybe not in volume, they are still known to be the slight premium to beyond, which went uh, also as a branded product, but more through retail uh, first uh, versus the high-end restaurant community. So to me, brand versus ingredients, you can in fact sell cricket protein, for example, which happens to be highly sustainable as an ingredient into other companies. I tend to think those are also challenges because it is then up to the companies that are creating a cricket bar to market a cricket bar to a consumer. Not always the best thing to do. Okay, so the final category that we want to touch on is regulation, and that is don't rely on regulation to make your business model work. A lot of the responses on policy and regulation caught my eye because there seemed to be a healthy split among folks who were responding to you. Some thought you got to invest a lot of money into changing regulation or changing policy to make your business model work. Um, One example, I think, was Beacon Power in uh, changing wholesale market rules to allow flywheels to participate uh, for ancillary services. Um, Others said, if you're developing a business model and you need that policy to make it work, you're in the wrong business. So what do you think, Shale? How does this break down? Uh, It seems sort of like a clear yes and to me in that you what you like it yes it is true <laughs> that if you are building a business that is totally reliant on regulation especially regulation or policy that has not yet been built then that's a fundamentally flawed business and there's a decent chance that it's never going to work um on the other hand i think it is also true that lots of successful businesses in this space have been built off of a business model that works on its own but for which um changes in or additions to policy and regulation could be a boon Um, And so I I do also think that once you hit a certain scale, when you can afford it, then investing in government affairs or regulatory affairs can make a lot of sense. I mean, so residential solar would be a good example here where like lots of businesses built off of an existing regulatory system, um, which existed in some states, but not all states. And then they went out and invested heavily in government and policy affairs to, to get that stuff passed in other states. But they had a business you know, that was reasonably big before they needed to go get net metering in Florida, for example. I would agree with Shale as a general statement. At our stage, so this seed stage investing, we will not invest in a company that needs to see regulatory change to be successful. Having said that, as these companies scale, if they can use a regulatory or policy team to help improve their future performance, we're all about that. But we need to be able to see a base level of market and scale 
as a standalone before the company actually goes out and invests in those resources. Oftentimes that's trench warfare, it's challenging and it takes a long time. So you really have to have a long-term view when you believe that a company is dependent on having something tweaked in regulatory or policy land. Can I add one more twist to this conversation? There's something that stood out to me in this in in these responses. And Craig Lawrence said, um, hardware in clean tech is a great way to make money. So the, the, the lessons from clean tech 1.0 is that enabling business models, software, uh, hardware light is going to be more successful. But he points out that many of the most successful companies are Tesla, Enphase, Solar Edge, First Solar, Silver Spring, Solar City, Sunrun, SunPower. Uh, and and those are kind of the the major winners out of that period. Many of which have been you know making their own products and investing very heavily in manufacturing. So what gives? To me, the answer on that question is around one of the points that we just discussed, which is get closer to the customer. Sometimes building a software hardware product is what you need to do to fully integrate to get close to that customer and avoid the gatekeeper discussion. And really solid investment and design and user experience and product experience is oftentimes what wins the day. Sometimes that has a hardware component. So, for example, it can grow in about, I think, 25 to 30% of our companies. We have now 27 in the portfolio have some kind of hardware aspect. Shale? Yeah, I agree. I mean, so, you know, I think that um, climate tech or clean tech is is just like broader tech tech wherein there is enormous value to be yielded out of differentiated hardware, um, both for the reasons that Abe described, getting closer to the customer, and also like, you know, this is an infrastructure heavy business. And so a lot of the value will ultimately be created in designing better infrastructure. I mean, another one of the big successes, I would say, in that first wave was NextTracker, which is, uh, you know, they were, they were a pioneer in solar tracking solutions. Um, that's a hardware, fully hardware product. They have some software as well, but primarily a hardware product. Um, and it was, I guess it was about getting closer to the customer, but really it was just like, we can make solar cheaper basically on a levelized cost basis and they could do it at scale and they were really smart about their go-to-market and so on. So there's lots of value in the, in hardware businesses in certain cases here, but just like the rest of the tech sector, there's also just as much software and you know, hybrid type business models to be built as well. So I just, I don't think, I don't think clean tech is, or climate tech is really any different in that way. And I think there needs to be a, an, a vibrant ecosystem of investors who can feel free to pick one of those lanes or both of them, but we we're going to need sort of every piece of it. So Abe, in the beginning, you talked about the macro factors that are making people pay attention to this space again. And that is we are living the reality of climate change. And we have now begun to understand the new world we've created for ourselves. And people with money are taking notice in new and interesting ways. So as inevitably more money flows into this space, what do you both think about how much the venture capital community has internalized these lessons that we've discussed? And do you feel like we're going to see a more sustainable investment pattern going forward, given that there's going to be a new frenzy of activity just because of the scale and urgency of the problem. So, Shale, let's start with you. What do you think the venture capital community has or will learn from these lessons? To be honest, I think it's too early to tell 
because I think this um, this big movement around climate tech is still pretty young, as we described before. Not yet clear to me exactly how it's going to pan out in terms of the types of things that investors are really excited to see. I've seen from having chatted with a bunch of folks who are sort of traditional tech investors now looking at the space, I feel like I've seen a few different approaches. One which is, well, we invest in software, and so we're only going to invest in software in this space as well, like enterprise SaaS even more specifically, um, which is one lane. Another, which is maybe something like um, like revolutionary fetishism or something, which is we want to invest in like the the big solutions that will change the game. So this is like we're only looking at next generation nuclear or direct air capture or, you know, carbon capture and sequestration stuff like that all of which has a place as well but you know i think what i what i'd like to see is a, a holistic attitude um as to look there's a lot there's a million different components of climate tech and solving climate change and it has the entire array of um investable and not investable you know mini universes within it and so we should take a portfolio approach if we're going to be all climate tech um, let's get involved in all the various parts of it. Abe, you get the final word. How much has the venture capital community ingested and uh, internalized these lessons that we've been talking about? I think in general, they have not yet internalized all the lessons. Uh, I think there is still no definitive set of lessons to internalize either. Well, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't challenge the premise of this podcast, sir. <laughs> well, we're creating the definitive. <laughs> well, yeah. well, maybe we haven't this come to it. the conclusion here. I think that many of these groups, as they've actually spoken to our existing portfolio, as well as us, and I'm sure others, are actively trying to learn from the past and not repeat future mistakes. That's true of the venture community. It's also very true of the entrepreneurial community, uh, seeing a tremendous amount of interest in kind of unpacking what happened in yesteryear. And I'm, I'm quite optimistic about that. I think it is incumbent upon us in the energy community broadly to not be protective of what we're doing and, and be very open about what we think the lessons were that were learned, even if those are discussions that are not internalized entirely. And it's very important for those, those investors to both come in and to make sure that we do not repeat the mistakes from 1.0. So rather than keeping others out, I think we should welcome them in with open arms and, and make sure that we have dialogue and discussions as they enter the fray. Abe Yakel is a managing partner at Congruent Ventures. Always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I hope I get to come back someday. You have 10 seconds now to explain why you're a better investor than Shale. Ready? Three, two, one, go. I'm in the office. He is not. I'm out here, man. I'm in the trenches. I don't know what you're doing sitting there behind a desk. <laughs> Meanwhile, I haven't seen the inside of our office for the last two weeks as I've traveled around. So here we are. <laughs> and Shale Khan is a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Always, always fun, sir. Likewise. I am Stephen Lacey. And that is all for the show. Thanks for being here. You can find Shale's tweet there in our show notes. We want you to continue to add to it. You can listen to this, read the responses, and then share your thoughts as well. We will also retweet it from the Interchange account. So be sure to interact with us there. If you want to send us story ideas, uh, you can tweet at our account, Interchange Show, or you can hit us up at PostScript Audio 
at gmail.com. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Shale Khan is my co-host. This show is a co-production between Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.